0: Good morning to everybody down here in the well. Good morning upstairs to the well cafe. Uh, just such a good day to be in church. I'm glad you're here. Uh, this is the well worship community, worshiping at the same time in two places. Uh, and if we haven't met before, my name is Johnny, and I get to serve as the lead pastor of this worship community here at First Methodist Mansfield, and it's a joy as always to do that. Just such a great day in worship in both places, uh, I know, and and so uh, just happy to continue this time together in God's word and seeing what God has to speak to us today Now if you are here for the first time, maybe your first time in a long time We're in a series currently, this is week five of six uh, of our series called Family Meeting And the whole premise of this series, the basis of this series, the, the whole like, kind of notion that we're working with here Is that the church, and particularly this church, should operate like a great family And great families have uh, shared values, they have a shared vision that they're all pursuing together. And as part of that, they also hold each other accountable to that shared vision and those shared values. They hold each other faithful to those, as not only they pursue them together, these hopes and dreams, but also they help each other grow And become their best selves. So over the course of these weeks, we've explored what this means and what this looks like. First few weeks, we've really uh, dove into the very early church. We looked in Acts and the the beginnings of the church and how it started to help us kind of find our identity as the church and understand what it means to be a family uh, as a church. Pastor Lauren got to share with us uh, last week just a a remarkable sermon uh, on what it means to live sacrificially. As the church, we call ourselves the body of Christ, and if we are going to be the body of Christ, we must embrace what Christ embodied, right? And part of that is sacrificial living, and uh, and Pastor Lauren shared that with us, a uh, wonderful message. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about what it means to belong to a church, uh, which was a, a wonderful sermon about uh, being open and inviting and the tension that we felt there. We mentioned it, but we didn't really dive in too deep. Uh, There's a tension when we call ourselves a family that we also want to be a welcoming family. And the tension that exists is this idea of being open and welcoming, inviting, uh, including everyone to come in. But also understanding that being a part of that family means that you share in those values and you share in that vision. You share in that common identity. And we find that there's a tension there because as we bring more and more people in, as we bring new people in that might not know anything about what it means to be a part of this family, we're glad that we have more and more seats available and more and more people coming. But at the same time, there's that tension between welcoming and then uh, pursuing these shared visions and values. And that's really what we're going to dive into today is this tension. This tension that exists in the church, this great big tension It's honestly, it's existed before the church even began. It's been a part of the story of God and God's people since before the church was even a twinkle in God's eye. And there's this tension that we we have to wrestle with and we have to live in, and this tension is between two things, and that's grace and that's truth. Grace and truth are two vital parts of the church, two vital parts of what it means to be a part of a people of faith And yet we often find them in tension, and it's a difficult tension to manage. And churches and pastors often find themselves leaning one way or the other, choosing one or the other, making one either grace or truth the thing that they really latch on to because it's too hard to manage both of those things. Many of you uh, in this room, many of you upstairs, might have found yourself in one of those churches before that has chosen either grace or truth to be uh, the main thing that they focus on. If you've been to a truth-only church, and you don't have to name that church, you don't have to raise your hand, but you know, if you've been in that truth-only church, right, you've sat in the pews week after week, and you come to realize that I feel like the sole purpose of me coming to this church is so that the pastor can remind me, not let me forget what a dirty scumbag sinner I am, right, right? <laughs> You've been there, you know, you're, that's why you're kind of laughing. You're like, mm, that's really uncomfortable because that's true. I've been there. Like you've sat in those pews and just every week, week after week, it's just pouring on of the guilt and shame. This is a t- you're a terrible sinner. I can't even believe it. Can you believe that God even loves you? I can't believe it. Maybe you've attended the Grace Only Church, right? You've, you've been there. You've never attended this Truth Only Church, but you've been to the Grace Only Church. And you come in week after week and you've heard of God's love lavished on you and you've heard how you are just so freely forgiven and yet we forget to talk about what it is we need to be forgiven of. We forget that there's something, there's a reason why forgiveness is offered. We, we neglect the things that might be destroying our lives from the inside out because we don't want to offend anybody, right? We just want to talk about grace and we just want to talk about love. And if you've been to either one of those, maybe you've been to both of those churches before at one time or another, you've probably left that church thinking there's something missing. There's something missing. I just feel it. Like I, I, I love truth. I love being challenged, but I feel like there's this peace that's missing. Or I, I love hearing about God's love and I love hearing about God's unending grace, but I feel like there's something missing. So that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today is this tension that we feel between grace and truth, the very real tension, and then how that's addressed in Scripture. So like Lauren talked about last week, as the as body of Christ, as a, as a church, as a people, we're to embody those things that Christ did. And, and she talked about living sacrificially, and we're going to talk about grace, and truth. So uh, in John, the Gospel of John, it's the fourth Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter one, what John is trying to do as he's telling the story of Jesus and Jesus' ministry on earth, the first thing he wants to establish is who Jesus is, right? Who is this Jesus? Where did Jesus come from? And why does he have this authority? And in chapter one, verse 14, John, the Gospel writer, says this, the word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I think I wrote faith and truth on there. That's supposed to be grace and truth. Typo on my part. Full of grace and truth. If we were going to boil this service, or this scripture down. We might say that Jesus was full of it, right? Now, that's what I don't want you to tweet now, because that's people will be like, what church do you go to again? That's neither grace or truth. <laughs> Jesus was full of grace and truth, not a balance between grace and truth, not sometimes grace and sometimes truth, but the full embodiment of both of them, grace and truth. Now, the trouble with that is that's really a messy thing to deal with. It's messy because it's kind of hard to understand. We as people, we kind of want it one way or the other. We don't really like the gray. We don't like the middle ground. It's too messy. We we want it one way or the other. I want the grace or I want the truth. Me personally, I tend to tend to gravitate toward those verses about truth for other people. Right? I, I want you to hear those verses. And I gravitate toward the verses about grace for me. I want truth for you and grace for me. Right? Right? And you're laughing because you know that you do that too, right? Like it, you want truth for others and you want grace for yourself. You might find yourself in the exact same situation, but you still want, you want everybody else to learn from their mistakes, but you want to just be forgiven. There's an ancient Hebrew word for this. I don't know if you know this. It's called yabbat, right? And, and we, we still use it today and you might not even know that, right? Like so if, if somebody came up to you and was going to share a little truth with you and say hey i don't know if you understand but remember last time when you got onto this person about this and now you're kind of doing the same thing and you go yeah but it's different <laughs> with me i'm so glad you laughed at that like, but seriously it's 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 different right my situation's different and then you go into all the little nuances and explanations of why your situation is different than this other person while this other person deserves straight up truth but you deserve the grace or vice versa, they're begging for grace, and you're like, yeah, but see, I already messed that up once, so the grace was that you got to see me mess it up, and now you knew better than to do that. So you get the truth now. Right? We like truth for others, and, but grace for ourselves. Additionally, we have a hard time with this messiness of, of this middle ground, of the nuances of grace and truth and how it's applied in its fullness, because we want definitive answers on things. We want things to be black and white. When we look at situations, we want to know, is it wrong or is it right? Yes, no. Sin, not sin. Like, I have to know because gray doesn't work for me sometimes. I struggle with gray. I struggle with that messy middle ground. But the problem is, is when we tend to go exclusively grace or exclusively truth, we end up with this really lame caricature of what Christ really intended for the church what Christ intended for this new community that was going to rise up and continue on in this ministry of salvation to the world we end up with this really poor caricature of what Christ really hoped for what Christ really intended and then those two caricatures argue with each other about which one is the true church when in reality exists somewhere in the middle grace and truth Jesus was full of it not the balance Not sometimes one or the other, but the full embodiment of both. And the gospel writer John and many of the disciples got to see this firsthand. They witnessed Christ be that lavish people with both grace and truth, the full measure of both grace and truth in the people that they encountered. Many times over in many situations. But we're going to read of one such situation today and look at its example. It's a very familiar story. Um, that we all, uh, if you've spent any time in church, you've probably heard, but we're going to examine a little more. So if you brought your Bible with you today, I want to invite you to turn or click over to the Gospel of John if you haven't already found it. We're going to be in chapter 8. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in both spaces provided. They're blue Bibles. If you're using that blue Bible, you can find John chapter 8 on page 1662 today. Like I said, this is a very familiar uh, passage of Scripture for many of us. Uh, so I hope for those of you that this is familiar, I hope that you're able to hear it with fresh ears again. It might help if maybe you're familiar with it to not read it as we read it, but instead to try to imagine yourself there as a, as an onlooker, as a, as a person that's present in this story, watching it take place. You might even find yourself as one of the characters in the story as we read along. So here we are, uh, chapter 8 we're going to begin in verse two. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, the scripture, the Mosaic law, the thing that they abide by. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Jesus is out of evens, right? He can't even right now with this question. He just if you have kids, you, you understand what this feels like when you ask a question or you ask your child to do something and they just look the other direction and start doing something else, and you're like, hello, <laughs> you know. This is Jesus, just knelt down, just started doodling in the ground. <laughs> but the Pharisees and teachers of the law were not to be deterred. Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Who knows what Jesus was writing? There's a lot of speculation as to what, but we can't really know. Like it's just says he was writing on the ground. Be really interested to know what it is. It's interesting to see how Jesus interacts with a lot of people when it comes to situations like this. Jesus is constantly challenged throughout the gospel with these questions. People trying to understand, in some, some instances, truly trying to understand what does it mean to be a faithful Jewish person, to follow the law, to love the law, but also follow this new way that you're talking about, Jesus, is hard. It's messy. I don't understand. Explain to me that others really want Jesus to be wrong. And so they ask him questions to trap him. And that's what this is. And Jesus very rarely gives the easiest answer. right? He doesn't just straight up answer him how he could answer him. Instead, he wants the question to be part of the answer. He wants them to really ruminate on that question and the implications of them even asking it. Here's what I mean by that. If they came up and said, Jesus, we caught this woman in adultery. The law of Moses says that we should stone her. Jesus, what do you say? And Jesus could have said, well, according to Roman law, you can't do that. Bye. Because they really couldn't. I mean, according to Roman law, and they're in the province where Rome rules, right? Only Rome was allowed to execute people. Only Rome, Rome had to put their rubber stamp and say, it's okay, we can execute them. Otherwise, those that would take out this justice, this other justice, Rome would have come knocking on their door like, well, sorry, now we got to kill you too. You know, you're not allowed to do that. Jesus could have easily said, like, according to Roman law, you can't. This isn't even a question. I see right through you. So just stop. But Jesus sees the game they're playing. He understands that there's more at stake here. So he really wants them to understand why this is a stupid question. He says, let's do it your way. I'll play your little game. Anybody here who has no sin, go ahead. You throw your, those are pretty nice looking rocks. You throw the first stone. Just try not to hit me. I'm going to be over here drawing in the dirt still. But whoever doesn't have any sin, go ahead. Anybody here who has never broken one of those laws of Moses, you know how hard they are to keep. There's like 7 million thousand of them, right? Like you can't keep them. Any one of you who has never broken one of those laws that says it's punishable by death, you go ahead and throw the first stone. You're all guys here. Anybody here who has never even looked at a woman lustfully, go ahead. You start. You get the first throw. I'll move out of the way. Jesus wants them to look deeper at the the source of this question and really understand why they're asking it and understand that there's something bigger going on here than whether or not they're right or this person broke the law. Jesus goes on. Uh, or the story goes on, verse 9, at this, when they heard this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? I want to make a little side comment here. I can't help but do that, but I do this all the time when I read scripture, things that are just noticing that I can't preach a whole sermon on, but I'd love for you to notice and think about later. But notice here in verse 10, in this story, this is the first time the woman's actually addressed directly. Up until this point, she is simply an object for people to prove how right they are and how wrong somebody else is. And not to mention the fact that Last time I checked, it takes at least two people to commit adultery. And according to the law of Moses, both should be put to death. If, I mean, if we're really going to follow the law here. Yet, here's this woman. And she's been sitting here this whole time. And she is finally addressed directly. In our pursuit of righteousness, in our pursuit of being right and, and, and pursuing truth, I find one of the first casualties of of truth-only approach is that in our pursuit for being rightness, our our pursuit for being right and finding rightness, we forget that at the very heart of the matter is an actual human life. That doesn't make adultery right, but there's an actual human sitting here that we're talking about, and and we're talking about her like she's not even here. (laughs) The first thing that goes when we seek truth only is mercy. That's such a huge part of our faith. So, side note uh, Jesus says, Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, No one, sir, she said. Then Jesus says, Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And one little line there both grace and truth present. Jesus, the embodiment, full embodiment of both. Now, I've heard a lot of sermons preached on this uh, as a pretty popular verse. And and I often hear it preached with either truth lens or either grace lens. And in that just grace lens, we would usually stop at this neither do I condemn you part. And we would talk about how there's no condemnation uh, with Christ, right? Like, we are all saved, and we are all free. And we use that, and we don't really take sin seriously. We kind of sweep it under the rug because, guess what? You're forgiven. It's not a big deal. We do the same thing with Romans chapter 8. If you've not read through Romans chapter 8, verse 1, write it down on your paper. Go look it up later. Highlight it. Um, But it says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We do the same thing with that verse. There's no condemnation. And while that is a beautiful and just significant truth for all of us, if we just stop there, if we stop there, we lose the true power of that verse. Because if we keep going in Romans uh, 8 verse 1, it says this, uh, there's no condemnation uh, for those that are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Jesus doesn't end there. He begins there, and then he goes to the truth. Go now and leave your life of sin. I think the most important thing as I read verse 11 over and over and over and begin to understand how Jesus navigates that messy middle ground between grace and truth, I, I see this Jesus in offering grace, in acquitting, essentially, this woman, of her sin and of the punishment that was supposed to be handed down to her. In that acquittal, Jesus in this whole time does not detail what is required for that grace. Do you notice that? He doesn't give conditions or or limits on it. He just says, I don't condemn you. Well, these people could have come up and had their rocks and thrown the woman down and said, this woman was caught in adultery and, and the law says that we can kill her. And Jesus could turn around and go, well, you know, they got a point. That's what the law says. What do you have to say for yourself? With every intention of not condemning her and sending everybody away. But he could have started there. You do realize you're a sinner, right? You do realize that what you're, you did was wrong, right? You do realize that you could be put to death right now, right? But don't worry, I'm Jesus. I'm going to save you. No, that's not how Jesus works. Jesus does not detail what is required for this acquittal, for this, for this grace. But Jesus urges That this moment of grace received, that this grace that is given so freely, that this moment becomes the starting point of a new life. Does not detail what's required to receive the grace, but urges that this moment of grace received and given so freely is the starting point of a new life. That she is going to turn away from this life of sin. That she is going to turn away from behavior that is not only destructive for her, but for others. I love how Jesus navigates this ground between grace and truth. He doesn't abandon the law, yet at the same time, he does not put conditions or limits on grace. We try to get this right as people. It's hard. It would be so much easier to be just truth church or just grace church because it's it's a lot more black and white that way. But to live like Jesus and to embody and embrace what Jesus embodied we have to navigate that messy middle ground of both grace and truth. Because if we were a church that was grace without truth, we wouldn't be whole. We'd be missing something. Because church isn't a place where we come in and just hide from our sin. Right? We don't come in the doors and close it and we don't have any windows so we can just hide from those destructive things that exist in our life. We come in just to get a pat on the back and a hug and say everything's going to be okay and never address the reason for the grace in the first place. Church is not a place to hide from our sin. That's what grace only does. It hides from sin. Now, I want to be really clear here that you can never have too much grace. Grace doesn't run out. Grace always exists no matter what. I mean grace and grace and grace. I read earlier from John chapter 1 verse 14 where we talked about how Jesus was full of both grace and truth. If you look two verses later uh, in verse verse 16, John says this, "Out of his fullness." Out of the fullness of grace, grace and truth that Christ embodies, out of his fullness we have received all grace in place of grace already given. We have received grace upon grace. Upon grace, upon grace. Grace never ends. There will be people that will receive grace, that will seek forgiveness and seek to live a new way, and then they just can't. They're trying. They're battling addiction, or or they 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 seek grace and they they receive it and they and they try to turn away to a different life, and something else pops up and they fall down again. Grace never ceases. It, it is always there. But if grace doesn't eventually lead to the truth. If grace isn't leading people to truth, then it might actually cease to be grace at all. So hear me carefully when I say that grace never ends. Grace will always be there no matter what, no matter who you are. Grace exists. Grace abounds in the deepest waters. we just sang that uh, down here. Uh, But if grace is not leading toward truth, it might actually stop being grace at some point. Uh, James Brian Smith uh, wrote a book, a, a beautiful book called *The Good and Beautiful God*. If you, I know many of you have read it. And many of you got to hear him speak when he was here for a Good and Beautiful Conference. If you haven't read that book, like get on your phone now, order it from Amazon. Uh, I think they do same-day delivery. It'll be there when you get home. You need to start reading it. Like, it's an incredible book. I've read it so many times, and I will continue to read it. It'll get so worn out. It's such an incredible book that really explores the, the who God is and who we are to God. It's amazing. But in that book, James Brian S- Smith says that God is not indecisive about sin. Here's the direct quote. God is fiercely and forcefully opposed to the things that destroy his precious people. God is fiercely and forcefully opposed to the things that destroy his precious people. So church must have the truth, because truth helps us confront the destructive nature of the sin that dwells within us. And the church has got to be a place where we can do that. We have to be able to confront the destructive nature of sin that is in our lives. But if truth lacks grace, then it lacks potency. If truth lacks grace, then it lacks potency. Because the church is not a place to come and gather new rocks or to gather more rocks. The church is not a come where you get to hear the preacher and say, "Ooh, that's, that's good truth right there. I'm ready to throw that rock at somebody else. I'm ready to throw that truth on my neighbor. I'm ready to throw that truth on my husband or, or my wife. I'm ready to throw that truth at my coworker. I can't wait to do that. Church is not a place where we come to, to gather more or new rocks. Church is the place where we should come to lay our rocks down. We come to the altar, we come to the feet of Jesus to lay down those rocks that we have been collecting, ready to throw them at people. This is where we come to lay them down because truth is vital to our transformation. It's absolutely vital to our transformation. It's absolutely vital to confront our sin, to change and transform into the people uh, that we should be, the, the image of Christ that we are called to be. But I want you to notice in this story Of Jesus, when both grace and truth are at their fullest, which one comes first? It's grace comes first. Grace must come first. And notice how much of it there is, right? These people show up and Jesus says, okay, whoever is without sin, you can throw the the stone first, right? That's the first moment of grace. I've chosen not necessarily to side with you. I'm just asking you to consider if you have never sinned, then fine, go for it. But if you have, if you have sinned, then it's probably a good idea to drop your rock. Jesus shares that grace. Grace, every rock dropped. Grace, 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 grace. And finally, when it's just Jesus and this woman left and he turns and he could say anything, he could do anything, and he asks, who has condemned you? She says, no one. And he says, then neither do I. And while Jesus wasn't holding a rock, that proverbial last rock then hits the ground. That last rock has hit the ground. Because this woman now knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that this man that stands before him, before her, Jesus, whether she believes he's the Messiah, the Savior, Son of God or not, this, this person standing before her is first and foremost for her. That Jesus, that's what grace does. Grace establishes this ground that says, I am first and foremost for you. I don't care who you are, I don't care what. I am for you. I am for you. I want what's best for you. It creates this safe place for people to confront sin, to confront their shortcomings and their faults. It creates this safe and fertile ground for truth to actually take root in a life because there is safety there to expose those darkest parts of us, those deepest parts of us that we try to keep buried down, that we ourselves don't even want to acknowledge, let alone let anybody else see. But when we know that this is a place of grace, that this is safe ground that we are standing on, we can open ourselves up to the truth that confronts that sin in us. It creates this safe place. And I wonder what would happen if we would do that more in our lives. If our first reaction is to drop our rocks before we confront sin. What would happen in our marriages, in our relationships, if when we find ourselves in conflict, our first reaction is to drop all the rocks that we've been saving Over the months, with our spouse's name on it, all those you know uh, missed expectations and all those little things that they did, and now when we hit this big thing, I can just start throwing rocks. What if we did that for our kids or our parents or our friends? What would happen if our first reaction was to drop rocks and make this a safe ground where we can all be brave enough to confront our sin? As we follow Jesus through the Gospels, we find him constantly acknowledging the full implications of both grace and truth, full implications of sin, yet not condemning sinners. In fact, if you see Jesus, the only ones he's quick to condemn are graceless religious people. (laughs) Anytime he encounters a religious person who is not willing to share grace and is really ready to misuse truth, that's who he condemns first. That's who he has the least amount of patience for. Graceless religious people. There's a tension there it makes us uncomfortable because it's hard to navigate that middle ground because it, we really do tend to lean, lean one way or the other. We're not, we're not comfortable sharing grace so easily and so freely as Christ did. We're not comfortable confronting truth in our own lives. But as a church, we should get comfortable living in that tension. We actually, we have to. Because if the church is the body of Christ, and Christ is the full embodiment of grace and of truth, then the church has got to find its home there in the midst of that tension. Because the body of Christ must fully embrace what Christ embodied. The body of Christ must fully embrace what Christ embodied. And I believe the church is most appealing to people that are outside the church, When grace is the most apparent thing. When grace is the most apparent thing, these doors fling wide open and people come in seeking that which they cannot find in this world. But if that grace lacks truth, if truth is not clear, if God's truth is not clear, then true transformation can never take place. And what I mean by that is that we tell people they're forgiven all day long. But we never say why we need forgiveness in the first place. The message of forgiveness begins to lose its meaning. If we want to talk about God's justice, but we don't talk about how we participate in our own injustices, what good is that message? If we want to talk about salvation and how freely we can attain salvation, but yet we never talk about what we need to be saved from, what good is that message? If we're going to talk about healing, yet we don't talk about what's broken, what good is that message? Grace and truth. Both. The fullness of both. So the question I want to close with today, and this is for us to ponder as we go, is how are we going to continue to live into that tension? As individuals, as people of faith, and as a church. What rocks are we holding on to that Christ is telling us it's time to drop? What rocks are we holding in our arms with people's names written all over them, ready for us to hurl them, and Christ is looking at us going, your name could be on all those rocks too. It's time to let those go. What rocks do we need to drop? Or how is the grace maybe that you're receiving leading you to confront sin in your own life? What are the areas in your own life that you can feel you're heading down this path that does not lead to life? And you've received the grace, you know the grace of God. How are we leading into that grace and allowing that grace to lead us to confront the sin in our own lives? How are those people in our lives that we hope hear the truth of God? How are we leading with grace? How are we leading with grace in those relationships? And how are we letting the grace that's shared with us lead us to the truth? And lastly, how are we committing ourselves as a people of faith, as a church, as a body of Christ, how are we committing ourselves right now to fling open the doors of this church and to bring in anybody and everybody to come hear the grace of our God that freely gives to all and the truth that transforms our lives? Let's pray together. Holy God, we thank you for your love and your grace that comes before we could ever acknowledge it's even there. We thank you for how that grace has been working in our lives, not only through your spirit, God, but through those around us. And we pray, God, that as we receive that grace, that our hearts are softened, that they are split open, God, so those vulnerable parts of us that we try to hide from ourselves and from everyone else are exposed to your light, God. Those dark places are exposed to your light, God, and that your truth is planted deep within us and that it takes root, God, and transforms our lives to bear fruit that you have called us to bear. We thank you for your grace and your truth. And we pray, God, as a church, as a body of Christ that has come together to embrace all that you invited, God. We pray that we continue to be a place, God, that that has seats open for people that may not think they even belong here, God, but they do. And that they come in to receive first that same grace that we have received. To know beyond a shadow of a doubt, God, that you are for us and that we are for them so that your truth can take root in their lives as well. And we can see more and more lives transformed and communities transformed in the whole world God transformed in the light of your love and your grace. We thank you for that, God. It's in your name we pray, amen.